If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. As we continue on in uh, the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in Genesis 2, and we will be in verses 8 through 17 this morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the opening verses of Genesis chapter 2. We considered there the, the Sabbath day and the, uh, the Lord forming man from the dust of the ground, breathing into him the breath of life. And now uh, we continue on beginning in verse 8. Genesis 2 beginning in verse 8, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit and he says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now this portion of Genesis 2 that is before us this morning describes the Garden of Eden, describes its location and the two noteworthy trees that are contained within it, describes the task that is given to Adam in the garden, verse 15, and the commandment that is given to the man in verses 16 and 17. Now, for our purposes this morning, I'll offer some comments on verses 8 through 14 here at the beginning, but for the bulk of our time will be spent down in verses 15 through 17. And in those verses, we'll have two main points. Number one, work. And number two, the covenant of works. Point number one is work. Point number two, the covenant of works. But first, uh, let's consider uh, what we're told there in verses 8 through 14. In verses 8 through 9, we have a, a summary of the situation that the Lord had planted a garden toward the east in Eden. Now, east of what, you may ask? Well, it's difficult to say. Perhaps Moses intended to give this general direction based on where he and the nation of Israel were at at the time in which he was writing. Regardless of how one may answer the question, the Lord planted a garden there. The Lord placed the man in that garden. And verse 9 gives us a description of it. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And so in that garden there are beautiful trees Trees containing fruit, which are good for food, and thus we see the Lord's abundant provision for the man whom he had created. He didn't just create the man and throw him out there to the wolves, so to speak. He created the man and provided for him abundantly. And we find that there are two particular trees in the midst 
of that garden, which become important in the subsequent history here of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. We have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Lord willing, we'll consider those two trees more, both uh, some this morning and some in uh, later sermons as we continue on in Genesis. And then verses 10 through 14 give us the setting of the Garden of Eden. We're told that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and that it divided to become four rivers. And we have these four, the, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now, we're familiar, of course, with the last two of the four, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Those two rivers originate in what we know as Turkey, and the Euphrates flows down through Syria, down into what we know as Iraq today. The Tigris forms part of the border between Syria and Turkey before flowing into Iraq. And as those two rivers flow down through Iraq, they join together and then flow into the Persian Gulf. Now, we don't know near so much about the Pishon or the Gihon. There are theories out there, but we don't know for sure. The text tells us that the Pishon is said to flow around the whole land of Havilah. Now, based on what we find later on in Genesis, Genesis 10, 6 and 7, we find that Havilah was the name of the grandson of Ham, thus making Havilah the great-grandson of Noah. In Genesis 25, 18, we find a reference to a place called Havilah in referring to part of the area that, in which the descendants of Ishmael lived. And thus, the, the best guess, I think, is that the land of, of Havilah is in reference to some part of Arabia, though the uh, precise region to which it refers is not nearly so clear. Some would place it in the, uh, the region of the, the Hijaz Mountains near uh, the city of Medina, a region in which there are gold mines. And you notice what the text says. It, uh, it says... Uh, of the land of Havilah, verse 11, where there is gold. Verse 12, the land of that gold, uh, the, the gold of that land is good. And so some have, some have thought that, it's, uh, that this region is that which is described there of the, the Hijaz Mountains, and apparently there is evidence in that region of the world of an ancient dried-up river in that vicinity. We don't know for sure. And if the identification of the, the Pishon is unsettled, then that is certainly true of the Gihon as well. Though a river called Gihon does show up in the land of Judah, as seen in 2 Chronicles 32.30, this does not appear to be the river that Moses has in mind here. The region of Cush, which is referred to in verse 13, uh, should not, I think, be referred to as the, the Cush of Africa or Ethiopia. That doesn't seem uh, to be what Moses is intending here. Rather, this region of Cush seems to be either another area of Arabia or perhaps a region to the east of the Tigris and Euphrates, perhaps over into what we would know as Iran today. But at the end of the day, there are two rivers with which we are familiar from modern geography and two of which we are not certain. And so while we may have some rough idea of where Eden was, we are nevertheless unable to nail it down precisely. Martin Luther's response to the question of the location of paradise was to say, it is an idle question about something no longer in existence. Moses is writing the history of the time before sin and the deluge, but we are compelled to speak of conditions as they are after sin and the deluge. For time and the curse which sins deserve destroy everything. Thus, when the world was obliterated by the deluge, together with its people and cattle, 
this famous garden was also obliterated and became lost. And so this garden that is described here becomes now the scene at which the rest of the narrative of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, down to the end of the chapter, uh, take place. And so that then brings us to verse 15, which is our first point, work. And so we find there in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The verb that is translated as cultivate is a verb that is most often uh, used in the sense of work or serve. And interestingly enough, these two verbs that are translated here as to cultivate and to keep, or it could be work and keep, serve and keep, also show up in uh, Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13, where Moses enumerates it as the duty of Israel, among other things, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep his commandments and his statutes, to serve and to keep. Likewise, those two terms occur together in regard to the task of the Levites with respect to the tabernacle. So we find in Numbers 3, 7, and 8 that they shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation of the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle, They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. So they're they're doing service and they are to keep. The two verbs occur together also in the description of the Levites' duties in Numbers 18, verse 7. And it has been thought that the usage of these verbs with respect to the Levites' duties in the tabernacle is intentional making a connection between the Garden of Eden, in which Adam was to serve and to keep, with the connection of what the Levites were doing in the tabernacle, to serve and to keep. And I think that is a reasonable supposition, inasmuch as the tabernacle has this garden-like imagery, and both the garden and the tabernacle were the place in which God and man communed together, in which God was dwelling in the midst of of his people. And so Adam is placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. And so we see that even before the fall and the curse, Adam has a task to do. This task was obviously not a burdensome one and grievous one as, as it would become after the fall, but nevertheless there was work to do. This is the way that the world has been ever since creation. Calvin said, Wherefore, nothing is more contrary to the order of nature than to consume life in eating, drinking, and sleeping, while in the meantime we propose nothing to ourselves to do. If we could express it this way, we might almost say that work is a creation ordinance. God created man, gave him a job to do. Now, Lord willing, when we get to Genesis 3, we'll talk about the way in which the institution of work fell under the curse. But... It wasn't under the curse in the beginning. Now, as we think about this subject of work, let's think, first of all, about the requirement of work, and secondly, about the goodness of work. As to the requirement, this seems implied by the situation of things as it was in the beginning. God was, uh, Adam was made by God from the dust of the earth. The breath of life was breathed into him. He's placed there in the garden to care for it, to serve it, to keep it to work it. Though we read 
here of no specific command by which God commanded him in words to work. Nevertheless, given the purpose of God in placing him in the garden, it would have been wrong for Adam to turn aside from this God-given purpose. The implication is clear. Adam was supposed to work. This is also implied by the fact that later on in the chapter, Eve was made as a helper for the man. What did he need help with? Did he need somebody to, to play games with him? Well, no. There's nothing wrong with a good, honest game, but that's not why Eve was made. The need for a helper indicated the fact that Adam had a task to perform, to be fruitful, to multiply, to care for, and to keep this garden in which God had placed them. So the purpose of God in verse 15 had implications for Adam and by extension had implications for Eve as well. And the scriptures bear this out, the, the necessity of work and the sinfulness of the opposite of work, which is sloth and laziness. We spoke a couple of weeks ago of the Sabbath, and interestingly enough, the fourth commandment presupposes and also explicitly commands work. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. You find plenty of good instruction about work in the book of Proverbs, and it's opposite, being a sluggard. So Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Proverbs 24, verses 30, 30 through 34, describes the scene of looking at the, the field and the vineyard of a sluggard and how it's been overgrown with thistles and its surface is covered with nettles. The stone wall has been broken down and the lesson learned is a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. The industry of the ant is more than once held up as an example. So Proverbs 6, 6 and following. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Agar, in Proverbs 30, verse 25, says, The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in summer. They might not have much strength, but they get out there and they get it done. Likewise, Lemuel, Proverbs 31, highly praises the industry of the wife of noble character. The wife of noble character is not just sitting on a couch all day, twiddling her thumbs. She's, she's out there getting it done. She's, she's working hard. Similarly, this is a theme that Solomon reflects on more than once in Ecclesiastes. He says in Ecclesiastes 2.24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. And again, Ecclesiastes 5.18 and 19, he says, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself. And all one's labor, which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom the Lord has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. And this line of instruction continues on in the New Testament as well. While none of us are Slaves in the sense that there were slaves in the New Testament church. Nevertheless, there's an application for us in those portions of the New Testament epistles that encourage first century slaves to work hard. And so think of Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The work that we do is ultimately not directed toward our employer or toward us if we're self-employed, 
It's ultimately directed to the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve in our work. Or Ephesians 6, 7 and 8, With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. An explicit application to us who are all free. Whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord. There's the command of Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Obviously, we take care of ourselves, but another purpose for work is helping to take care of other people as well, to share with the one who has need. There's that command that we read together uh, this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend your own business, and to work with your hands just as we have commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You don't want to be like that, that sluggard whose wall is falling down, it's overgrown with nettles, poverty comes on you like an armed man. You want to work hard so that you behave properly toward those outside and so that you yourself are not in any need. Likewise, 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we ex- command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Eat the bread that they themselves have earned, not mooching off of others. And so the, the scriptures are clear that work is required. There is no way around it. This is not to say that all work is what we most often think of as work. A lot of times when someone says, I'm going to work, we think, okay, you're showing up, you're, you're working your shift wherever you work, and then you're going home, earning a paycheck, and so on. That's, that's only one type of work, right? There are plenty of types of work. A lot of them are unpaid types of work. If you are a student in school, that's your job, as it were. That is your occupation. You should be working hard at it. If you are a stay-at-home parent and you're homeschooling your children, that's a job. Do it well. Do it for the glory of God. Do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. If you're a stay-at-home parent and you're cooking, cleaning, taking care of children, changing diapers, etc., that's your job. Honor the Lord in what you're doing. Some of you are retired and not planning to seek formal employment elsewhere, and in that sense you're a formal Working days and years are past. But even in that situation, if your finances are such that you no longer need to work a job in order to to earn income, even in that situation, you shouldn't simply just be idle. Under some circumstances, the retirement years can be years of, of great service. Service to your family, service to the church, service to the community, service to the Lord, and so on. If you're one who is in that situation, make sure that you're not simply just wasting your life. I'm not opposed to the retirement years being years of greater leisure than the years in which you worked a regular job. But even still, there are ways that you can be productive and serve the Lord, serve the church, serve your family, serve your community, or whatever else you might be able to do in your situation. And I think it's reasonable to suppose that you ought to be doing something in those seasons of life. Certainly we understand that that due to poor health and different situations through no fault of their own, some people may be unable to work. If I live long enough, I suppose 
I'll be unable to work. Or at least I won't be able to work in the way that I can work now. That's an unfortunate aspect of life in a fallen world. But even in your condition then, you can still do good. If you even have just your mental faculties about you, you can still pray. If you can speak, you can encourage others by your words. You can edify by your conversation. And depending on your situation, you may be able to do other things as well. J.C. Ryle, I think, was helpful when he said, a true Christian should desire to leave the world when he dies a better world than it was when he was born and should give his might to improve it, whether in money, talents, or time. Let everyone wake up, rub his eyes, and look around him and see if he cannot do something. Let no one say, I can do nothing, unless he has tried. Let no one say he has tried, and it is no use because he has not done everything that he wanted. You may be able to do very little, but do what you can. Don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say. Don't set your sights so high and say, well, if I can't reach that, I'm just going to hang it up. I'm not going to do anything. That's, that's not a good idea. You ought to at least do something. Do what you can. Do what is reasonable. Do what is within your grasp. God gave Adam work to do. Work is required. And all of us ought to be working at least in some sense, doing what we can. But work is not only required, it's also good. It's part of God's good design in creation. And even though we are only acquainted with work as it is now attended by the circumstances of the fall and of the curse, even then, work itself is still good. We know work as tiresome and toilsome and difficult, and indeed it is. The, the curse brought this element of toilsomeness to it. The ground now produces thorns and thistles, and oftentimes there are elements of difficulty that can get in the way of our work. We have our own ignorance, sometimes our own laziness, sometimes our own physical limitations, sometimes our own mental limitations. I knew of someone who said, I grow tired before I grow tired of working. In other words, he, he liked to work, but he just, just got tired before he could do all that he intended to do. We have difficulties. The tools break, the cars break down, computers malfunction, we plant a garden and the rabbits eat uh, what we had intended for ourselves. We plant a fruit tree and the, the deer eat the fruit. We only know work as it is attended by difficult circumstances that are brought on by the fall. But nevertheless, all of those adverse circumstances notwithstanding, work is good. Work is wholesome. And we ought not to despise it or complain about it, or regard it in our hearts as some kind of necessary evil or something like that. Work is not evil. Work is good. My father used to say, man needs to learn to work and needs to learn to like it. This means that we need to think rightly about work. Work is a, a means, perhaps the, the main means, of carrying out the creation mandate of Genesis 1.28, that mandate of subduing the earth and ruling over it. In the world as it is now, subduing the earth and ruling over it means governing nations, keeping the peace, ensuring the safety of people, defending a nation from its enemies, producing food and clothing, and getting that food and clothing into the hands of people by means of transporting it, marketing it, selling it. Subduing the earth and ruling over it means teaching others, whether that be at home or in a school or in the church, 
Subduing the earth means designing and building homes and hospitals and offices and installing plumbing and sewer systems and electricity and HVAC systems and providing and producing the raw materials by which those things can be built and installed. Subduing the earth now means fighting against the effects of the curse, whether that be pulling weeds or mowing them down or applying herbicide or developing pesticide, providing nursing and medical care for those who are sick, means fixing things that are broken, and this list could go on and on, but I think you get the point. All of these are good things to do. The circumstances that make them necessary are not always good in themselves, but the work itself is noble and good, and therefore it ought not to be regarded as bad, but as good. We ought to learn how to do our work with excellence to the glory of God, whatever that work may be. And in doing so, we ought to learn to like our work as well. As Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 5.18 again, Here is what I have seen is good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. God gave us work to do, all of us. So let's do our work and do our work to his glory. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve when we do these things. And that brings us then to our second point, which is the covenant of works. After placing Adam in the garden to care for it and to keep it, we read the Lord's explicit command to Adam there in verses 16 and 17, where the Lord says, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. In the words of the 1689 Baptist Confession, this was a righteous law which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof. Now in Reformed theology, this righteous law is sometimes and uh, commonly called the, the covenant of works, a covenant in which God gave this law to Adam and the position of the man then was dependent on his works. If he obeyed God, he would live, and all would be well with him. If he disobeyed God in this, he would die. The outcome of this was dependent on the works of the man, whether his works would be good or evil. If his works were good, if he were obedient, he would live. If his works were evil, if he were disobedient, he would die. Now, to be sure, the narrative of Genesis does not refer to the giving of this law as a covenant. Nevertheless, on the basis of Hosea 6-7, it is not unreasonable to suppose that the arrangement was, in fact, a covenantal arrangement. Hosea, in Hosea 6-7, the Lord is speaking against the waywardness of Ephraim and Judah, and in speaking against them, he says this, "...but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant." There they have dealt treacherously against me. Now, what we find in Hosea 6 is that the people there are far away from practicing a heart loyalty to God. Instead, they deal treacherously against the Lord. They're breaking his covenant. And in doing this, they are following in the footsteps of the prototype of all covenant breakers. Following in the footsteps of the first man, Adam. And if we think about it, the analogy is appropriate. When Adam sinned in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he violated the conditions set by God 
conditions under which Adam could live in fellowship with God and continue to live in the Garden of Eden had he obeyed. But he ate the fruit and died spiritually that day and became susceptible to physical and eternal death. God said, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam's violation of the terms that were laid down by the Lord is more serious and more deadly and more damnable than we can imagine. On the one hand, it seems like a small thing. He he ate some fruit. How bad can it really be? It was horribly bad. And the reason it was bad is because God told him not to do it. God told him he would die when he did. And this has consequences that extend to all of us here today. This is the reason why we live in a world that is full of sin and death and sickness and suffering and separation from God. Adam passed over the boundaries of what was acceptable and this accounts for the condition of the world in which we live today. And so likewise, Israel, in the context of Hosea 6, had violated the terms which God had laid down for them. They too had transgressed the covenant. And there were far-reaching implications for them as well. They had incited the wrath of God against them and were headed down the road toward national destruction. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant and dealt treacherously against God. Now certainly there are more ways than one of interpreting and understanding Hosea 6-7, but to my mind this seems to indicate that the original arrangement between God and Adam was indeed covenantal. And to add more weight to this, I think it's probably helpful to clarify what we mean by the word covenant. Oftentimes, I think our default position is to think of a covenant as an agreement that, are, that is entered into by two parties of equal standing, kind of, like, kind of like a marriage covenant, in which both the husband and the wife freely enter in and make mutual promises to each other. If one or the other of them is at the altar and doesn't say, I do, then there is no marriage because that party did not enter into the covenant. But here in Genesis, we don't see Adam agreeing to anything, do we? We don't see him so much as saying, okay. All that we explicitly see is the Lord giving this law to him. But I would suggest that that in itself is enough to make the arrangement covenantal. I think J.G. Voss put it well when he said that in the Bible, God's covenant is not an agreement or compact between God and man as equal negotiating parties. God and man are not equals. God is sovereign and man is subject God, by his absolute authority, ordains and establishes the covenant, imposing it on man. Man has no part in determining the terms of the covenant arrangement. His part is only to obey. And I think that's, that's helpful. And I think that also the example of the Davidic covenant may be instructive at this point also. Because, first of all, in, when that covenant was given... It's not explicitly called a covenant. If you look at 1 Samuel 7 or the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17, the Lord's promise and law given to David is called a covenant nowhere in 1 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. And after the fact, though, it is explicitly called a covenant in Psalm 89. You see it showing up a few times in Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 3, verse 28, verse 34 verse 39. The point here is that just because an arrangement is not explicitly called a covenant at its inauguration does not mean that the arrangement is not a covenant. It might be a covenant without it actually explicitly being called a covenant then and there. And the Davidic covenant is instructive secondly in that 
Again, as uh, to quote Voss, God, by his absolute authority, ordains and establishes the covenant, imposing it on man. Man has no part in determining the terms of the covenant arrangement. His part is only to obey. What happened in the Davidic covenant? In the Davidic covenant, David was not asked whether he agreed to the terms. He wasn't asked to sign on the line, so to speak, in order to ratify the arrangement. The Lord simply laid out the terms of what he was going to do and what he required of David's descendants. The Lord promised, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne is established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16. That was the promise. And then this was the stipulation. The Lord said in regard to David's son, When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. David didn't have the option to say, No, I don't like it. I'm, I'm opting out of this. The Lord simply laid out the terms of the arrangement. And David's acquiescence therein was neither required nor so much as requested. And I think that applies here in regard to Adam as well. Just because Adam doesn't sign on the line and say, Okay, that does not in any way militate against this being a covenant. So with all that said, I think, I think there are good reasons to refer to verses 16 and 17 as a covenant. But if that makes you uncomfortable, you can call it a law. It certainly is a law. So Adam is given this instruction, and he's told the penalty for his violation of it, that he would die. Now, there's no explicit mention here of what would happen had he obeyed. We certainly don't know by experience, do we? Because he didn't obey. But there's no explicit reference here to what would have happened. Theologians have sometimes supposed that there would have been a, a period of probation, a period of testing, after which if Adam had obeyed during the, the time of the test, he would have attained a reward both for himself and his descendants. Now, I think that's a, a reasonable supposition. Again, not, not explicit in the text, but it may be hinted at, though, by the presence in the garden of the tree of life. There's a tree of life in there. And by the fact that when Adam and Eve had sinned, they were barred from the tree of life. Perhaps, as the Swiss theologian John Henry Heidegger thought, the tree of life was a pledge of heavenly life in the way in which the Lord's Supper, the bread of the Lord's Supper, is a sacrament of the truly life-giving Christ. For even after the fall, it was a symbol of revealing Christ. And indeed, the tree of life does point ahead to Christ. And so we find in uh, Revelation 2.7, the Lord Jesus saying, I will give to the one who conquers of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. This is, this is the reward for, for those who, who follow Christ, those who conquer, as they, they get the tree of life. And so the, uh, there's no, no explicit reference as to, as to what would have happened, but it seems... Potentially reasonable to suppose that had Adam obeyed for a period, there, uh, there may have been an end to this time of testing. Now, this law in verse 17 has been referred to as a symbolical law. And I think there is some merit in this. In that, and what, it, what I mean by that is that, is that this law is, is symbolic and that this is not the only thing in which Adam is required to obey God. Because surely we cannot suppose that when God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam was free to do absolutely, and I mean absolutely, whatever he wanted to do so long as he did not eat from that tree. Now, he was given freedom to eat from the other trees, 
But that doesn't mean that he was given freedom to do absolutely whatever else he wanted. Certainly, Adam was not free to hate God. He was not free to worship an elephant. He was not free to make an idol out of twigs and grass. He was not free to mate with a bear. He was not free to kill himself or to kill or harm Eve after she was created. You, you understand what I'm saying here? This list could be, could be multiplied, but there's a lot of things that Adam was not allowed to do in the garden other than simply eat from the tree. Indeed, if I can borrow the language of the 1689 Confession again on this point, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept, not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. So since Adam was created in the image of God with original righteousness, he had the moral law of God written on his heart. There's this particular precept, this symbolical law, which forbid him to eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. But just because he could eat from the other trees in the garden doesn't, doesn't mean that he could do absolutely whatever else he wanted. As God's creature, it was required of him that he live in accordance with the moral character of God. This particular law concerning the tree functioned as the touchstone, as it were. It was to be the proving ground, the site of the test, in which it would be seen whether Adam would use his will and his intellect and his powers to obey God in this and in every other respect, or whether he would choose the thing which God had forbidden. Now, living as we do downstream from this history, we know how all this turned out. And Lord willing, we'll see more of this when we get to Genesis 3. But for now... Let's notice here the importance of obedience. God promised death to Adam if he disobeyed. The flip side is that, by implication, he would have lived if he had obeyed. <clears throat> Disobedience to God brings death. Obedience is the path of life. The problem is that in our foolishness, we think we are wiser than God. We see in Scripture his instruction and commands about things, and sometimes we may slip into saying, yeah, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, but that's not really what he meant. Yeah, but I want to do it anyways, so I will. Yeah, but it's not all that bad. Yeah, but I think I know better. Yeah, but. Yeah, but disobedience to God brings death. That's the bottom line. Reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli wisely said, you should also learn here, God's law is not to be evaluated by the things it regulates, for it often seems to circle around common sorts of things, as here, whether it is concerned with the fruit of a tree, with eating and drinking, with sexual relations. The prudence of the flesh, when it considers such things in themselves, regards them as trivial. But pay attention to what the goal is, namely obedience to God, so that God's wisdom may be preferred to our own. We need to ultimately trust God that he's wiser than us. And when he forbids something, he has a good reason for it. When he promises death, he means death. God is wiser than we are, and we must submit to him. Because the consequences of rebellion are horrific. The consequence of rebellion is destruction. And we know that. The reason we know it because Adam didn't keep this command. Adam fell from his original righteousness and we fell in him. Death surrounds us. Death is in us because this command 
was not obeyed. The covenant of works is violated, violated by Adam, and that's why the world is in the mess that it is today. And that is why you and I are in the mess that we are in today. Now, by God's grace, as those, those of us who are saved and redeemed in Christ, we've been, been plucked out of sin and destruction as brands from the fire. But nevertheless, we still live in a world of sin and death. We still live in a world that is tainted by the curse and the fall. Our lives are difficult because of what happened when Adam chose to disobey God. But thanks be to God, that is not the end of the story. Right? Thanks be to God, there's not only the first Adam to whom God gave this covenant of works, there's also the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And unlike Adam, Christ is not a covenant breaker. He obeyed God fully. Adam disobeyed and brought ruin. Jesus obeyed perfectly, bringing righteousness for all who will repent and trust in him. As we find in Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. So praise be to God for the obedience of that one man, the obedience of Jesus Christ, who truly did fulfill the law for us in every way. And the promise of the gospel is that all who trust in him receive the forgiveness of sins. And not only do we receive the forgiveness of sins, but we also receive the righteousness of Christ imputed to us through faith. And thus we're called to repent and believe, to repent, turn to Christ, to unite ourselves to Christ by faith. Blessed are all who trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the faithfulness of Christ. Though we know the history and we know how this turned out for Adam and therefore for us, we also know that you have sent us Christ who obeyed perfectly, who has loved us and gone to the cross for us so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and made new and so that we might ourselves eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Pray that we would do that as we cling to Christ in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.